0: Well, tonight feels like uh, a lament psalm kind of night, doesn't it? After the election results. We'll have to save that for next week, though. uh, (laughs) I don't have to. It's It's all right here. I just draw it out of the text. Psalm 68 for tonight. Psalm 68, let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd help us to see more clearly how you are worthy of our praise. Uh, remind us of your goodness and your works on our behalf and also your future plans to, to win, to uh, conquer, uh, to, to bring us to a place of vindication. And Lord, we look forward to that day. Thank you for our Savior who accomplished our salvation and in whom we can trust to take us all the way until the end. Lord, we we follow his lead and we want to um, do that better. So help us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you see in the superscription, the 68th Psalm is written by David. And what type of psalm do you think it is? A praise psalm, okay? Normally, uh, what happens in a praise psalm is it starts out right in the first few verses. Oh, actually, any any psalm tends to do this. They start out with the theme right at the beginning of the psalm. This one actually doesn't start with a command or an expectation here until verse 4. Uh, we're going to talk about that. But verse 4, sing to God, sing praises to His name. Then verse 19, blessed be the Lord, or in other words, give praise to the Lord. Verse 32, Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth, sing praises to the Lord. Verse 34, ascribe strength to God. His majesty is over Israel. And then verse 35, uh, at the end of the verse it says, Blessed be God, or praise be to God. So, this praise psalm is very similar to the others that we've looked at. And it calls on believers to acknowledge God for His past and present works among His people. And it also anticipates the victory that God will win ...in the future. And really, if you wanted to ask why we praise God, we could narrow it down to two main things. One, his character, and two, his works. And the works could be subdivided into his past works, his present work, and his future work. And that's kind of what the psalmist does here. He, he praises God for his character and for his works. Primarily, he's going to focus back on what God has done in the past and, and how that affects them now and then also anticipate the future uh, deliverance of God. And so because of all those reasons, we should praise God. So this is a longer psalm, Uh, so I'm just going to read through verse 18 to start with, and then we'll cover the rest of it as we we go through it together. So let me begin reading Psalm number 68 with verse 1. This is the word of God. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad, let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exult before him. A father of the fatherless... And a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance when it was parched. Your creatures settled in it. You provided in your goodness for the poor, O God. The Lord gives the command. The women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. Kings of armies flee, they flee, and she who remains at home will divide the spoil. When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you are like the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings there, it was snowing in Zelman. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountains which God has desired for His abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. So in short we we could say about this psalm that God's people should praise him and really we can say that about any praise psalm. So to be more specific, God's people should praise him because he has taken residence among them after defeating their enemies. So in that in that theme you see that we should praise him for two reasons, one his presence and two his his um his deliverance that he has defeated their enemies. God's people should praise him. What we have going on here in um, the beginning of the psalm is a, a procession that's beginning. Um, this very first phrase here, let God arise, let His enemies be scattered, and let those who hate Him flee before Him, is language that comes from Numbers chapter 10, verse 35, where Moses is moving the Ark of the Covenant from Mount Sinai into the wilderness. Remember, he, he brought down from from the mountain... The, the Ten Commandments, but in addition to that, really all the Law of Moses, which included uh, this expectation of what kind of furniture God expected to have in the tabernacle and so on. And so the Ark of the Covenant was made, and then the, it was moved on. And so um, this very likely is a an Ascension psalm, which is a, a psalm that would be used when the Ark of the Covenant would return to Mount Zion. And so what What the psalmist David here is doing is he's reminding the people about how God is with them. That's what the point of the Ark of the Covenant was. It wasn't some lucky charm or or something like that. Instead, it was designed as a symbol of God's presence. It it was a reminder to them that God was there. And so the first thing that we see here in the text is the joyful arrival of God's presence. In verses 1 through 6, the joyful arrival of God's presence. This... This reminds us of the time when the, the Ark of the Covenant was on the move. And what it's going to do is it's going to move for us uh, from Sinai to the wilderness to Canaan and then eventually to Mount Zion in Canaan. And, um, and so, so throughout this psalm, we'll see that the power of God is leading them all the way, that the power of God is integral to defending his people. Here's an early indication of that power in verse 2. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. So how is smoke driven away? Well, it's like wind. What, what David is saying is, God, you be like wind to smoke. You be to the enemies like wind is to smoke. Or the next line, verse 2, you be to your enemies like fire is to wax. Right? Fire, wax has no effect on fire, but fire has a profound effect on wax. And God's saying, or David saying, God, you do that to our enemies. Destroy them. You have the power. The immediate result of God's power is that the righteous will rejoice, in verse 3. So let the righteous be glad, let them exult before God, let them rejoice with gladness. And then in verses 4 through 6, David calls on God's people to praise the God of the weak and the oppressed. Here we have the first official, we could say, call to praise for the people, because this isn't, um, this isn't something that David is kind of individually doing to God. Like, this is me and you talking, God. This is for all the people. He's calling on all of Israel to praise him. And as we'll see at the end of the psalm, he's really calling on the whole world to do the same. And here he's calling on the people to praise God because God is coming to the city. They must praise him. And the reasons for it is because God cares for orphans, widows, lonely, and and the prisoners. You see that in verses 5 and 6. In other words, the people who are weaker in society, the people who we would not expect right we'd expect god to choose the mighty and choose the strong uh the powerful the 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 affluent um so on and sometimes god does does do that by his grace praise god for that but generally speaking god chooses the weak things of the world to confound the wise right he chooses the foolish things of the world and um in contrast to that to god's care for for the lowly and at the end of verse 6, we see that the rebellious are judged they live in a parched land. They don't enjoy any prosperity. Um, that, that's talking about in a larger sense. Obviously, we know that, that the wicked prosper in the temporal um, sense, but, but long-term, uh, the rebellious are judged. So the joyful arrival of God's presence it starts out here at Sinai. We'll start to see this procession here in just a second in the second part. The second thing that we see is that the presence of God Uh, guarantees his power from Egypt to Zion. The presence of God that guaranteed his power from Egypt to Zion verses 7 through 18. Here we see three parts of that, and I apologize for this being so small. I had to squeeze it on here. But God's power in the Exodus verses 7 through 9. God's power in the Exodus. So, it says there, When you went forth before your people, O God, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked. The heavens also dropped rain. So here we have this idea of God removing them from the oppression of Egypt. And then we see this idea of, of them hanging out in the wilderness for a number of years. And yet God was providing for them the whole way. He was He was removing their enemies from them. And we also see that. Uh, wilderness idea at the end of verse eight. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God. Uh, so there's this big uh, earthquake that went on during the giving of the law. Verse nine: You shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. In other words, God provided for them when He were when they were in the wilderness. They they weren't left on their own to just fend for themselves. God provided for them, and that shows God's power. David wanted to remind them of their history and show how the symbol of God's presence, this ark that's now coming into Zion, was once in, it was once in, in the wilderness. And God was leading all the way. God was there. God was powerful. God provided all along. And then secondly, in the conquest, verses 10 through 14, the movement of God's presence now from the wilderness to Canaan, the land of Canaan, the promised land. God caused his people to settle here. Your creature, verse 10, your creatures settled in it. You provided in your goodness for the poor, O oh God. I think what that means is you provided a place for them. You prepared a place for them in the promised land. And then in verse 11, following the battles, the women would write songs. And, and that was not unusual that after a, a, a large victory that people like Miriam or other ladies would write songs and come and sing them on behalf of uh, of the people and to god and and then the rest of the people would learn them and sing along as well and so that's what what they're talking about that god in his power brings them into the land of canaan it's amazing that the way that joshua describes it is that he dispossessed the land for them that is he takes the present inhabitants who are their arch enemies effectively, and removes them from the land for them. Now, we know how that happens through various key battles, and then eventually through the individual occupants of Israel, removing them on their own. But the point is is that God is the one who defeats his enemies. Verse 12, kings of armies flee, they flee. Verse 14, when the Almighty scattered the kings there, it was snowing in Zalman. And then in verse 13, God's people enjoy the spoils of war. When you lie down among the sheepfold, you're like the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. Some kind of metaphor that speaks to God's providing for them and and allowing them to enjoy the spoils of war, the, the, the result of his promise, the fulfillment of his promise to receive the land. And then thirdly in Zion, so Exodus... Conquest or Canaan we could say, and then Zion. if we want to just keep it cities, we'd just say uh, we would say wilderness or or I should say locations. would be wilderness, Canaan, and Zion. Here God's power is seen in his arrival at Zion. In verse fifteen, it talks about this mountain of God, the mountain of Bashan. and this mountain range in Bashan was the largest of the mountain ranges, is the largest of the mountain ranges in Israel. And it contains the largest mountain or the tallest mountain, which is Mount Hermon. And so what he's saying here is that there is this mountain here with many peaks in verse 15. And then notice what he says in verse 16. Why do you look with envy, O mountain with many peaks? What mountain is he talking about? Is he talking about Zion there or Bashan? He's talking about Bashan. Look at the previous verse again. The mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. So why do you look with envy, O mountain of Bashan? What are they looking with envy? Why would a tall mountain—this is metaphorical, by the way—but why would a tall mountain look with envy on another mountain? Look at the end of the, or the middle of the verse. At the mountain, why do you look with envy? In the middle of the verse, says, "At the mountain which God has desired for His abode, surely the Lord will dwell there forever." So here you have this large mountain, Bashan, and it's as if it is envious of Mount Zion, this little, smaller mountain. Why would, why would it such a large mountain look with envy on a small mountain? And the reason is because God is there. Because God has chosen to set His roots down in Mount Zion, that He would make that His dwelling place. And so now Mount Zion, although not the, the greatest of the mountains, is the most admired, the most envied of all the mountains in Israel, and yea, the world. Verse 17, God's arrival in Zion is accompanied by His angelic army. I think that's what the chariots and the myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands, which is that kind of language is used in the book of Revelation to describe the angelic host or the heavenly armies. Verse 18, God's arrival in Zion is welcomed by some who were once enemies. And we'll touch on this at the end, but you have ascended on high. So here God is ascending in in the symbol of the Ark of the Covenant. It's coming up the hill of Mount Zion. They're singing as it goes and it arrives and, and it says, you have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, which would be appropriate for tribute to be given to the king, the, the, the one who resides there, even among the rebellious also that the Lord God may dwell there. So even among the rebellious, you, you are bringing back those who have been taken captive and among those captives are some who used to rebel against you. They're now on your side, God. And so you are to be praised for this. You, you are the God who is to be praised. The joyful arrival of God's presence and, and the power that made it happen. Thirdly, we see the resulting praise that comes from victory in verses 19 through 31. The resulting praise that comes from victory. And let me read this next section. Which talks about God defeating his enemies. Verse 19 Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. God is to us a God of deliverances, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Surely God will shatter the head of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who goes on in his guilty deeds. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that your foot may shatter them in blood. The tongue of your dogs may have its portion from your enemies. Here we see that God defeats his enemies, and as a result, we should praise him. And the reason I say that is because of verse 19. Blessed be the Lord, or praise be to the Lord. Why? Well, it's going to show us that God defeats his enemies in verses 20 through 23, but notice in verse 19 that God deserves our praise because he bears our burdens. God bears our burdens. I think this is one of the greatest reminders in all of Scripture. That God helps to carry our burdens. Have you taken much time to meditate on this truth? Isaiah 63.9 says that in their affliction, He was afflicted. Have you considered that about God? That He's not just standing up there or sitting up there cold and indifferent to the troubles of His people. But in their affliction, He is afflicted. Or Judges 10.16 says that God could bear their misery no longer, and so He came and delivered them. God was pitying them. He sensed their misery and came to rescue them. Now, in this psalm, we, we really have an implied promise that the Lord bears our burden. Now, what I want to be clear about is that this psalm is not written directly to us, right? Right? psalm is written to the people of israel but i would suggest to you that we certainly have a god who bears our burdens as well not just israel this wasn't god is afflicted when israel is afflicted that is true but god is afflicted when his own people all believers are afflicted the reason i know that from the new testament is because of romans 8 32 that if god delivered up His own Son and freely gave Him up for us all, then how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? How will He not also with what He did to Christ include the bearing up of our burdens? Friends, God feels your pain. Jesus feels your pain. We know that from Hebrews 4.15, don't we? That we have a high priest who is certainly able... To sympathize with our weakness. Now, the way that he he states that the author of Hebrews is actually, he uses a negative to say that he says, Do we not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses? And the idea is, Yes, we do have one who is able to. Or, no, I should say, we we actually do have one who's able to sympathize. So I say it positively, though, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. So what we can be confident about is what Israel should have been confident about, and that is that God carries our burdens. He carries them with us, and He carries them for us. Not only does God know about our burdens, and He pities us afflicted, He is afflicted when we are afflicted, but also He delivers us from them. That's what verses 23, 20 to 23 are about. God is the one who is the, the deliverer. The end of verse 19 says the God who is our salvation, our rescuer, our deliverer. Verse 20, God is to us a God of deliverances. and he talks about how he's going to shatter his enemies. And then in verse 23, he's going to allow us to take part in the victory. He's going to let us share in the victory. God's not going to just do all the work and then we we kind of stand back. Certainly he could do it that way, but, but instead God is going to, verse 23... Bring the enemies back so that our foot may shatter them in blood. That the tongue of, of our dogs may have its portion from their enemies. They're going to feed. They're going to feast very well that day on the enemies of God and the enemies of us. Our enemies are God's enemies. God's not unconcerned or unopposed to our enemies. He has the same enemies as we do. And... And he will come and rescue us from them. And because of this, again, what's the point of remembering all that? That God bears our burdens, that God is our deliverer, that God's going to help us share in the victory. The point of all that is verse 19. Blessed be the Lord. Give praise to him. Then in verses 24 through 27, we see the presence of God announced in Zion. The presence of God announced in Zion. Let me read that for us. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went on, the musicians after them, in the midst of the maidens beating tambourines. Bless God in the congregations, even the Lord, you who are of the fountain of Israel. There is Benjamin, the youngest, ruling them, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali, the Ark of the Covenant arrives in Zion and David wants to announce its arrival. It's here. Just imagine the streets being lined with people like, like what happens when our military um, soldiers come back from war. We, we line the streets waiting for them and, and excited about their arrival. This is God coming back from battle. And David wants to announce the arrival of the symbol of the presence of God, which is the Ark of the Covenant. And there are singers going before and musicians before and behind. And this excitement, this praise spreads throughout all the land. That all the land would want to be a part of this procession. It's not just one group. That's why verse 27 says, "...from the largest of the, all of the, the tribes, Benjamin..." You want to think about it in terms of a map? They have the most land space. Or the smallest of all the tribes. Or from those who are in the north, Zebulun and Naphtali, all the way to those who are in the south. In other words, it's all-encompassing. Every tribe belongs to God, is loved by God, and has God dwelling in their presence. This is something to bless God for. Again, verse 26, bless God in the congregations, even the Lord you who are the fountain of Israel, God's special people. And then verses 28-31, through 31, we see the expectation for future victory from God. God's future victory is expected. It reads, Your God has commanded your strength. To show yourself strong, O God, who have acted on our behalf. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you, Rebuke the beasts in the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples, trampling underfoot the pieces of silver. He has scattered the people who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Here, the understanding and the remembrance of past victory and the present abundance of God's mercy that they now enjoy should cause them to anticipate God's future deliverance, God's future victory. They have seen Him work in the past. They see that He is now with them. And so they should expect that God is going to deliver them in the future. Why would He act any differently? That's what verse 28 is about. Your God has commanded your strength. Show yourself strong, O God. You have acted on our behalf. So do it again. Verse 29, Verse 29, These defeated kings will submit to God. Verses 30 and 31, God has the power to rebuke even the strongest of them. This uh, beast in the weeds, or in the reeds, excuse me, verse 30, is probably referring to Egypt. That phrase is used in Ezekiel 29 and Ezekiel 32 calling Egypt or Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Egypt, the monster in in the reeds. That... That God is the one who is over the Nile. He's the true God of the Nile, not the Egyptian gods. And so He has power even over the strongest of their supposed gods and over the power of their leaders. And so why would we not expect God to be victorious once again? He has been victorious in the past. He is present with them now and He will be victorious again. So that's another thing for which they could praise God. Finally, in verses 32-35, we see the invitation for all people to join in praising God. Here's where we come into the picture, specifically, but also all the other nations besides Israel during that time. David says in verse 32, Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth, sing praise to the Lord, to him who rides upon the highest heavens, which are from ancient times. Behold, he speaks forth with his voice a mighty voice. Ascribe strength to God. His majesty is over Israel and His strength is in the skies. O God, You are awesome from Your sanctuary. The God of Israel Himself gives strength and power to the people. Blessed be God. David doesn't stop by calling Israel to recognize the arrival of the coming, of the ark and the presence of God. David wants all of Israel to recognize this, but now he, he spreads out the echo of his call to praise, not just to the edges of Israel, but but rather the echo goes out to all the nations, to all the world, that we all must acknowledge God for his presence and power and do what Israel should do, and that is submit to him. Specifically, we should join with Israel in singing praises to God. So what does this praise look like? Well, it's at the very most basic part of praise is is singing. Verse thirty two Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord. And why do we sing? Why do we praise God? Why should all the nations join in with Israel? And I think it's the same reasons that Israel praised him. Israel praised him because he was powerful and glorious, and that's what he calls us to do in verses thirty three and thirty-four. To him who rides upon the highest heavens, which from ancient times, behold, he speaks forth his voice, his mighty voice, ascribes strength to God, his majesty over Israel, and his strength is in the sky. So there's the power in verses 33 to the first line in verse 34, ascribes strength. So praise God for his power. And then his glory is seen in the last part of verse 34. His majesty is over Israel. And the strength, see his power again. So we should praise God because he is powerful and glorious. And then verse 35, because he is... Awesome and gracious. O oh God, you are awesome from your sanctuary. And then here's the grace. The God of Israel himself gives strength and power to the people. So God doesn't just... He's not just powerful and he displays his power, but he actually grants us the power to be able to, to engage in these battles with him, to the power to actually praise him. And so we should praise him for that. And that's why David finishes as he does. Blessed be God, or praise be to God. All right, two principles and one application tonight. Number one, our highest praise should be reserved for the recognition of God's presence and power. Our highest praise should be reserved from the recognition of God's presence and power. As believers, we have great confidence in life and in trials and in death, when we know that God is there. When we know that God is here. So that whatever we need, we know that He will provide. And so that whatever, wherever we go, we know that He will protect us. And it is for this that we must reserve our highest praise. That God is near us. And that God is powerful. He has the power to defeat our enemies. That He comes in a storm, a whirlwind, and with a powerful earthquake. And yet, He's also the God who, verse 18, daily bears our burdens. Not just a one-time thing. I kind of heard about this burden that you are bearing, but daily. See that again, verse 18. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burdens. God cares about His people. This is not just some detached automaton who somehow um, just lives up in the cosmic uh, reaches of space and, and, and doesn't really care about his creation like the deists would argue. Right? That God is kind of, he sets the world into motion, he creates and all that, but then he kind of just stands back and doesn't do anything. He doesn't really have anything to do with the world. He's not concerned with that because he is high and lifted up. He is, he is transcendent, and that's true. God is transcendent. He is far above his creation, but he is not unconcerned. He's not only transcendent the way that theologians talk about it. He is both transcendent, far and above all of his creation, different. He's, he's unlike any of us in the sense that 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 we can't fully, um, we can't fully be like him in any way. He's infinite. We are finite. But but then theologians talk about immanence which is his nearness. He's both high and lifted up and he is near. And so we can praise him for that. This this verse kind of shows it really in verse 18 that God is so powerful to defeat his enemies and yet he daily bears our burdens. That's not the deist God at all. That's not the God who just sets it in motion and steps back and doesn't care how it turns out. It's the God who sets it in motion, who, who creates all things, but then is concerned about every single detail in the universe. That's God. He daily bears our burdens. He has a special care for those who love Him, for those who follow Him. And so our highest praise ought to be reserved for Him. Second principle is that the best best expression of God's presence and power is in the person of Jesus Christ. The best expression of God's presence and power is in the person of Jesus Christ. This idea of transcendence and immanence is seen very clearly in the person of Jesus Christ, right? That he is the uncreated one. Jesus was not, never had a beginning. I should say the Son of God, Christ, never had a beginning, right? He, when he came to earth, he already existed. He didn't just become brand new. That's why John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So He was already there. So He is transcendent, the Son of God is. And yet, He's also imminent, isn't He? That He is near to us. He comes and He he takes on our human flesh. And He experiences our weaknesses. He experiences infirmity and sickness and pain and betrayal. And so, Jesus is the perfect representation, the perfect expression of who God is with regard to his presence and his power. Certainly, the Ark of the Covenant was great. It was good to be reminded that God was there, but that wasn't actually God, that was just a symbol. Jesus Christ is God. And the reason I know that Jesus is the best expression of God's presence and power is because of verse 18. Oh, I was saying verse 18 before. Who daily bears our burdens is verse 19. apologize for that. Verse 18 is the one we'll look at now because it shows... Paul actually quotes from here in Ephesians chapter 4. So here in verse 18 he says, You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord may dwell there. And if you were to look in the margin of your Bible you would see that, that it takes you right there to Ephesians chapter 4. So it shows you, um, usually these, these verses are just cross-references. Another way you can think about some of the topics that are in the sentence. But here specifically, it's actually a quotation that's, that's picked up by the Apostle Paul to describe what Jesus did when he conquered death. That Jesus is this conquering king that's being talked about here. That Jesus is the fulfillment of this conquering king. And this is what Jesus did for believers. Paul appeals to this text to show Christ's authority. You might say, well, what victory has Jesus really won? I mean, last time I checked, the world was still corrupt. Am I right? Last time I checked, I have not fully been redeemed. Sin is still alive within me. And so, what's this victory that Paul's talking about? How could Jesus have won a victory? What Paul's doing is he's applying this psalm to Christ's victory over what? Sin and death. And so Christ, after his, his death on the cross, defeated death, and He led with Him captives. People who were once captivated to the power of sin are now being led to heaven. And he's like this triumphant king who comes back to the city with all the train of captives that, that once were imprisoned by a, by a pagan ruler. And then Paul also uses this phrase in Psalm 68, verse 18. It says, you have received gifts among men. Paul uses the phrase and he, he changes it and he says he gave gifts to men. One of the things that would normally happen in victory is that that when the king would win, that people and nations would come to the king and give him gifts. Paul's using this imagery, but instead he changes the source. He says there's gifts being given, but instead of people coming to the king, in this case Jesus, and giving him gifts, it's the other way around. Jesus is the one dispersing gifts. And in the context, what he's talking about is spiritual gifts. That through the power of the Spirit, Jesus, because of his conquering victory over sin and death, now has the power, the ability to be able to give gifts to his children, to his people, to God's children, that is. So the point of Paul's writing in Ephesians 4 is to show that Christ is exalted as ruler over the church and therefore he has the right to dispense gifts to the church to be used by believers for the progress of his work. And that's why later on it says he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and he goes through the list. And, and we are all to be, um, to be using our gifts for the good of the body, right? building up one another. That was because of the victory that Jesus won. Jesus has, with his death, and with his conquering of sin and death, has put a stake in the ground. What He's doing is he's claiming, he's claiming the earth as His place of, a, of rule. That He is the King. But as we know, as I mentioned earlier, He hasn't done it yet. He hasn't taken up residence. He simply put His flag in the ground and said, I've won the victory. I'm coming back. And one day He's going to arrive in, of all places, Mount Zion. There's going to be a huge procession And at that time he will lead captives who have been captive. And at that time all the earth will join in praise to him as the conquering king, the merciful savior, and the powerful Lord. The one who has risen from the dead is now reigning over all. And that day is coming. And so Jesus Christ, when he was sent to the earth, became the best expression of God's presence and power. And, and that power was was reserved very much while he was on the earth, but it's going to be it, it's going to to be released in his second coming, right? That's when he's going to win his battle, and he, he's going to win bigly, as one of our candidates says. All right. Application. As a result, we should praise the Lord for His presence and power. Pretty obvious. Probably could have guessed that one, but but let's just do it. Okay, That's that's where we're going with this. Why, why all this talk about God's presence and power if we're not going to do anything with it? The, the psalm over and over again just reminds us, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, sing praises to His name. Blessed be the Lord. Sing to God, verse 32, sing praises to the Lord. Blessed be God. And so what are we to do with all this? if God has been faithful in the past, if He has been powerful to win victories over even the toughest of enemies, and He is consistent and and, um, concerned about His people, if He daily bears their burdens, if He is present with them, and if He's going to win this future victory, and as we've seen Christ already win the victory, then what should we do with all this? Then we should praise Him. We should bless the Lord. We should sing praises to Him. Not just Israel. Should do this, but but we, all as part of all the nations, should join in praise with them for His presence and His power in the the past, the present, and the present and in the future.